Talk Recorded live. You're listening to the Jam Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. Looking for a lift? Experience a seed from the sore with Michael Guido of Metter, Georgia. A prodigal became a Christian, and he said to his sister, Mary, I've got a new heart. Show me, she answered. And that's what the Bible says. Show forth his salvation from day to day. Not only on Sunday, but also Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. You're to show it by your life. Witnessing is more than what you say, it's what you are. A girl was asked, under whose preaching were you converted? My mom's practicing, she answered. That's showing your religion from day to day by lipping by life. For your free copy of Dr. Guido's daily devotional, Seeds from the Sower, write The Sower, Metter, Georgia, 30439. Visit us on the web at thesower.com. piece of music is played with only two instruments, a right hand and a left hand. Hands can do incredible things, but nothing compares to using them to help save a life with hands-only CPR. If an adult suddenly collapses, call 911, then push hard and fast in the center of their chest until help arrives. Hands-only CPR is recommended by the American Heart Association, and it's incredibly easy and effective. Find out more about this latest method of CPR at handsonlycpr.org. The power to help save a life is in your hands. A message from the American Heart Association and the Ad Council. This is Morning Inspirations with Minister Kenneth Jenkins.
Good morning. Glad you can join us on your early morning gospel program. Morning spaces we're going to talk to you in Jen Radio. Lebanon, Sarion, 
like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forests bare. And in his temple all cry, Glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace.
on Jam Radio 2.1.
how we treat one another is the single best evangelistic tool we can share with a world as divided as we often are. But I'm reminded it means daring to let go of my own infallibility for a moment, not worrying about being right or wise or spiritually impressive, and instead looking out for the person next to me, whether it's a longtime fellow church member or a newcomer or someone who has never before given Christianity a second thought. That's the Reverend Canon Chuck Robertson. Join us for some conversation and a message of faith today on Day One. Welcome to Day One, the weekly program that brings you outstanding preachers from America's mainline Protestant churches, sharing insight and inspiration from God's Word for your life. Here's our host, Peter Wallace, to introduce this week's speaker. Thank you, Sherry. We're honored to welcome back to Day One today the Reverend Dr. C.K. Robertson, who serves as canon to the presiding bishop and primate of the Episcopal Church based in New York City. Before taking this post eight years ago, Chuck was the canon to the ordinary in the Diocese of Arizona and earlier served as a parish priest. Chuck is a graduate of Virginia Tech and earned a Master of Divinity degree from Virginia Theological Seminary and his Ph.D. from Durham University in the United Kingdom. A distinguished visiting professor at the General Theological Seminary in New York City, Chuck is the author of several books. His latest is Barnabas vs. Paul, To Encourage or Confront. Chuck, thanks for being with us again. Thank you, Peter. It's wonderful to be back. You've written a number of very helpful books, including A Dangerous Dozen and Conversations with Scripture on the Acts of the Apostles, which we talked about last time you were here. But you've been prolific. More recently, you've published two books of particular interest to Episcopalians, The Book of Common Prayer, A Spiritual Treasure Chest from Skylight Paths Publishing, and with Dean Ian Markham of Virginia Seminary, Episcopal Questions, Episcopal Answers from Church Publishing. So what's your approach to the Book of Common Prayer? Well, as I say in the title, to me it is a treasure chest. All too often we use only a very tiny portion of it when we meet together on Sundays to mm -hmm. worship. But the fact is, if we own our own prayer book, we will find that from the front cover to the back, there is so much hidden gems mm. that we would never see otherwise and that can be incredibly powerful in our own daily devotional life. And what's the purpose of the book you wrote with Dean Markham? This was a wonderful book that came out of a series. The Presbyterians have one, the Methodists have one, mm -hmm. And now uh, the Episcopal Church has one as well, taking questions that would come up about the Episcopal Church and giving short answers. By having Dean Markham and myself do it together, it meant we could kind mm -hmm. of play off each other, mm -hmm. take different questions, think about what each of us was saying. It was a wonderful exercise, and I, of course, hold him in such high repute. So it was a great privilege to do it with him as well. And your latest book, Just Out, is Barnabas versus Paul, To Encourage or Confront, from Abingdon Press, a fascinating look at the relationship and impact of these two seminal figures through the lens of the Acts of the Apostles and Paul's own letters. What did you discover about these two early ministers of the gospel? Where in my studies of Paul, way back when I was working on my Ph.D., I fell in love with Barnabas. Hmm. 
I found that Barnabas, who is almost forgotten, he's neglected, Mm -hmm. and yet he's the third most talked about person in the Acts of the Apostles. Only Peter and Paul get more airtime. And as I started to explore how he's talked about, he is constantly a bridge builder, someone who is always looking to build more bridges than walls. And of course, for me, that is everything. That is what it means to live out our faith in Christ as we wrestle with the issues we have before us with one another. Paul, for me, of course, is traditionally known, and yet I think people think they know Paul. Mm. People make up their minds about Paul. And so what I wanted to do was to take this other character, Barnabas, and through him help people to look at Paul in a new light. And they might just be surprised at what they find. You've also been working on a new DVD series with Study Guide that examines the lives and impact of a half dozen Christians who were risk takers and change agents. It's called Hazardous Saints, Risking All, Changing Everything. Introduce us to some of them. Yes, this work through church publishing is in many ways uh, a companion piece Mm -hmm. to my earlier Dangerous Dozen, and it is about risk takers, Uh, people like Barnabas. No surprise, I start with Barnabas. Uh, and looking at how he took risks in welcoming Paul into the Christian community and apprenticing him in his work as a leader. From that point, we go forward through time and kind of take a a time capsule so that we hit certain people at certain points. Francis of Assisi, one of the greatest risk-takers the Church has ever known. Uh, Thomas Cramner, during the Reformation, the author of the Book of Common Prayer and the Archbishop of Canterbury under Henry VIII and Edward VI. And then we move up even further as we look at people like Sojourner Truth, living during the Civil War era and fighting for the rights of both slaves and eventually for women as well. And then in our own, uh, in our own lifetimes, we look at figures like Dorothy Day and Oscar Romero, both personal heroes in my life. Well, you managed to keep very busy with your ministry and your writing and so forth. You're also planning to lead a cruise this fall, focusing on the footsteps of St. Paul. And listeners can learn more about all of your work on your website at ckrobertson.com. Chuck, the New Testament text for today is 1 Corinthians 8. Would you read it for us? I'd be happy to. Now concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge, but anyone who loves God is known by God. Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists and that there is no God but one. Indeed, even though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Not everyone, however, has this knowledge. Since some have become so accustomed to idols until now, they still think of the food they eat as food offered to an idol and their conscience being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care 
that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if others see you, who possess knowledge, eating in the temple of an idol, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols? So, by your knowledge, those weak members for whom Christ died are destroyed. But when you thus sin against members of your family and wound their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is a cause of their falling, I will never eat meat, so that I may not cause one of them to fall. Chuck, we look forward to hearing your take on this and your sermon today, right-minded or big-hearted. Thanks again for being with us. Thank you. And if you'd like to listen to today's program again or read or share a transcript of Chuck Robertson's sermon, visit us online at dayone.org. Or for a free printed transcript, call us toll-free at 1-888-411-DAY1. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. These familiar words come from legendary adventurer and leader Theodore Roosevelt. But it is a safe bet to say that a certain first-century adventurer and leader named Paul would nod his head in agreement. In many ways, it is exactly what Paul was constantly trying to tell the Christians in Corinth, and certainly similar to his opening comment in today's reading. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. What is our goal? To be right-minded or big-hearted? Now, we live in a different time, a different place, speak a different language, face different problems from what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians. And for these reasons, we may be tempted to skip over readings like today's. After all, the issue of meat offered to idols is quite foreign to most of us. We are probably more likely to be sensitive about providing vegetarian or vegan alternatives when hosting a barbecue. But if we move beyond the surface, we might well discover that the situation described by the Apostle is far more relatable than we first imagined. Let's take a closer look. Corinth, in Paul's time, was already centuries old. And whether always accurate or not, it had quite a reputation. The Roman poet Horace once said, Not everyone can afford to go to Corinth, or it is not everyone's lot to go to Corinth, depending on the translation of the original Greek. Some argue that he was speaking of the difficulty of getting to a city that was strategically placed on a narrow strip of land known as the Isthmus of Corinth, linking the Peloponnese Peninsula with Greece's mainland. Many more, however, understood Horace to be speaking of the high cost of life in Corinth, especially when it came to the price of certain enticements, like the famed courtesans at the Temple of Aphrodite. Sin City is a modern term that has often been applied to first-century Corinth. Corinth was most certainly a cosmopolitan city. During the period of classical Greece, 
It was one of the wealthiest and most influential due to the buoyant commerce that permeated the city. Given its ports on the Gulf of Corinth and the Gulf of Aegina, just about anything a person could imagine made its way through the city. It is no surprise that the Romans chose to invade Corinth, only to destroy it in the process and end up creating a new Roman colony in its place, though still retaining so much of the character of the old city. It is likewise little wonder that Paul would choose to set up a series of house churches in this bustling site, now a provincial capital that also had a large Jewish population. According to Acts, it was in Corinth that Paul first met Aquila and his wife Priscilla, fellow Jews who shared the apostles' secular trade of leatherworking or tent-making. The city's diversity was mirrored in Corinth's Christian community, and not surprisingly, there were numerous instances of both contentions and cliques. Some were based on personal affiliations with particular church leaders, like Peter the Rock, or Charismatic Apollos, or Paul himself. Some were based on the ethnic or socioeconomic differences between members. But many of the difficulties arose simply because some Christians put their own spiritual knowledge or certainties above their relationship with one another. Take note again of what we just heard in today's reading. So by your knowledge, these weak believers for whom Christ died are destroyed. Now, Paul didn't dispute the argument used by some of the so-called wise ones among the Corinthian Christians, that because there really are no such things as other gods, then it doesn't matter at all if you eat food that has been sacrificed to one of the idols. Anyways, he actually agreed with them. But Paul disagreed with their desire to be right, trumping any concern for those who might be less enlightened in their approach to food offered to idols. He said, if food is a cause of their falling, I will never eat meat, so that I may not cause one of them to fall. Again, because we no longer have to deal with this particular situation, we might miss the crucial point that the Apostle is making, that my fellow believers matter far more than my need to be right or wise or in the know. It is interesting that the first great heresy that faced the church, Gnosticism, is the one that has plagued us ever since. While it has taken various forms throughout the centuries, at its core, is a certainty that I know more, have experienced more in the spiritual life than others around me, and that somehow makes me more special. It is particularly seductive because it feeds on our desire to be insiders. While Gnosticism in its full-blown form did not yet exist at the time Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, we can see him addressing a similar kind of spiritual arrogance throughout his letters. For instance, when he later speaks to those who are determined to show off their ability to speak in strange, ecstatic tongues, he again acknowledges that he shares this ability, but once more excuses this for the sake of others, specifically those newcomers in the congregation who will be totally confused by these tongues if there is no interpretation of what is being said. Paul puts it, I would rather speak five words intelligently than a thousand in tongues. 
No, we don't have to deal with idle meat or probably strange tongues. But the fact remains that we Christians today still often put our need to be wise or impressive above the needs of others around us. How many times have I mentioned to lay and ordain leaders in Episcopal and other mainline Christian congregations that we speak in tongues more than we'd like to admit? It may not be glossolalia, but it is inside speak. We need to invite a mystery shopper to come visit our church some weekend and then report back to the church leaders what they saw and heard and experienced. Did they feel welcome? Did they feel they were a part of or apart from everything that was happening? I still recall visiting a historic, well-known church once and found that while they did everything right in terms of the beauty of the service, I left the same way I entered the church, feeling like an outsider. Yes, there is much that we as church members can learn from Paul. But there is something else we can take away from today's reading, and that concerns how we as individual Christians treat one another. From Christianity's earliest days, one of the most powerful arguments for the power of the gospel was the deeply caring, genuinely respectful way in which believers approached one another. Signs of power are impressive. Great preaching is impressive. Beautiful liturgy is impressive. But as Paul goes on to say later in 1 Corinthians, if I have not love, then I am no more than a clanging gong or a noisy cymbal. That famous list of love's attributes in chapter 13, usually read at weddings, was originally meant not for couples, but for church members to try to get along better. Imagine starting each day for the next month by rereading 1 Corinthians 13, replacing the word love with the pronoun I. I am patient. I am kind. Or even, today I will be patient. Today I will be kind. Today I will not be jealous. And so on. Now, let's make our way back to today's reading and how it offers one powerful way to show our love. There are so many Christians today, Lord help us, sometimes I'm one of them, who are so convinced that they know what is right, so convinced that they are more spiritually correct, more spiritually wise, that they look down on their fellow Christians who are clearly in the wrong. Let's face it, historically, our track record is pretty poor. Instead of people knowing that we are Christians by our love for one another, all too often through the centuries, they have looked at us and shaken their heads as we have killed each other over differences in theology, threatened one another with excommunication, condemned each other for not being right-minded, all because we are right and the other is wrong. I still recall a friend staring at me with incredulity when I asked him why he didn't go to church. Sorry, he replied, but most Christians I've met are more concerned with being right than being pleasant. How we treat one another is the single best evangelistic tool we can share with a world as divided as we often are. But I'm reminded it means daring to let go of my own infallibility for a moment, not worrying about being right or wise or spiritually impressive, and instead looking out for the person next to me whether it's a longtime fellow church member or a newcomer 
or someone who has never before given Christianity a second thought. Paul tried to tell the Corinthians all those years ago, being intentionally big-hearted means a whole lot more than being right-minded. Let's pray. Almighty and everlasting God, you govern all things both in heaven and on earth. Mercifully hear the supplications of your people, and in our time grant us your peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Sherry Miller, how is the Day One Ministry helping people and why should you support it? Some listeners explain. Brenda in Pennsylvania says, every Sunday Day One gives me a message I can carry throughout my week. Mike in Minnesota says, there's not another program like Day One. It allows you to hear the Word of God from so many gifted voices. David in Texas says, Day One is a remarkable aid not only for a fresh look at a particular Bible text, but as a means to challenge me in my own faith development. And Carolyn in Georgia says, I start my Sunday worship with the Day One program. It prepares me for my church experience, but more than that, it speaks to my heart and gives me the message I need. Please give generously to enable Day One to continue to proclaim this much-needed message on the radio and online in the year ahead. Send your gift to Day One, 2715 Peachtree Road, Atlanta, Georgia, 30305. That's 2715 Peachtree Road, Atlanta, Georgia, 30305. Or call us at 1-888-411-DAY1. Or give securely online at dayone.org. On behalf of everyone at Day One, thank you for your support. Chuck Robertson offers some final reflections on today's message with our host, Peter Wallace. Chuck, you asked a very important question of us. What is our goal, to be right-minded or big-hearted? So many Christians seem to get that wrong, doing everything they can to prove their position right rather than seeking the best for others. This was a huge issue for Paul, as we can see in this message to the Corinthian Christians. Because of their views, they were damaging the faith of young or weak believers. Can you give us a better idea of how this works with maybe some examples that we might better relate to? Sure. In certain denominations, I know that there are certain uh, 
prohibition. Mm -hmm. Now, we Episcopalians drink alcohol and don't really have a problem with that as long as we do it in moderation. But I do know that there would be certain Christian brothers and sisters of mine who would find drinking alcohol to be sinful. Mm -hmm. So if they go out with me for lunch or dinner, and I just order a glass of wine or a beer or something and take no account of their sensibilities about that, then I would be in the wrong. Not perhaps because it is wrong for me to drink, but because I know that they think that is wrong. Mm -hmm. And for me, that would be flaunting something. What would be the point? Paul mm. was clear in his writing several times that whatever spiritual perks he might enjoy were set aside for the sake of others. He sought to avoid this kind of spiritual arrogance that still pervades much of Christianity. Why is it so important to follow his advice? Well, isn't it fascinating how often we think of Paul as arrogant? His reputation, as I have written about and talked about any chance I get, is often not accurate. Mm -hmm. Here we have someone who goes out of his way to make sure that he is looking out for those around him. And I think the way we follow that example is to do exactly what he said. When he talks about love is patient, love is kind, hey, I can do that. Why not? And I think if we intentionally think in those ways, if we intentionally say, Lord, how can I act and speak around someone I'm getting ready to meet with? Well, that, that could change everything. Imagine what a powerful thing it would be before every meeting you have with someone if you lifted up a quick prayer, Lord, help me to be a blessing to this person in what I say or do next. And you said how we treat one another is the single best evangelistic tool we can share with the world that is as divided as we often are. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we all have to agree on an issue, right? Oh, far from it, far from it. If communion is based on agreement, then that's pretty poor communion. No, what's most exciting is when I don't agree. In fact, when I vehemently don't agree with someone, yet still can listen, hear, learn from, and let's face it, laugh with and enjoy time with that person. In that, I believe God is glorified, not in agreeing, but in finding ways to build bridges when we don't agree. Chuck Robertson, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much, Peter. It's always a privilege and a delight to be on day one. Day One is the voice of America's mainline Protestant churches. Visit us online at dayone.org. Our program is recorded and edited by Donald Jones and produced by Peter Wallace. Thank you for joining us. I'm Sherry Miller wishing you all God's blessings on Day One and forever.
Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. You are listening to Morning Inspirations on Jam Radio 2.1.
Morning Inspirations with Minister Kenneth Jenkins.
The following is a presentation of God Questions Ministries. Why should I not commit suicide? Our hearts go out to those who have thoughts of ending their own lives through suicide. If that is you right now, it may speak of many emotions, such as feelings of hopelessness and despair. You may feel like you are in the deepest pit, and you doubt there is any hope of things getting better. No one seems to care or understand where you are coming from. Life just is not worth living. Or is it? If you will take a few moments to consider letting God truly be God in your life right now, He will prove how big He really is. For nothing is impossible with God. Luke 1, verse 37. Perhaps scars from past hurts have resulted in an overwhelming sense of rejection or abandonment. That may lead to self-pity, anger, bitterness, vengeful thoughts, or unhealthy fears that have caused problems in some of your most important relationships. Why should you not commit suicide? Friend, no matter how bad things are in your life, there is a God of love who is waiting for you to let Him guide you through your tunnel of despair and out into His marvelous light. He is your sure hope. His name is Jesus. This Jesus, the sinless Son of God, identifies with you in your time of rejection and humiliation. The prophet Isaiah wrote of Him in Isaiah 53, verses 2-6, through 6, describing Him as a man who was despised and rejected by everyone. His life was full of sorrow and suffering, but the sorrows he bore were not his own. They were ours. He was pierced, wounded, and crushed, all because of our sin. Because of his suffering, our lives can be redeemed and made whole. Friend, Jesus Christ endured all this so that you might have all your sins forgiven. Whatever weight of guilt you carry, know that he will forgive you if you humbly receive him as your Savior. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you. Psalm 50, verse 15. Nothing you have ever done is too bad for Jesus to forgive. Some of his choicest servants committed gross sins, like murder, committed by Moses, murder and adultery, by King David, and physical and emotional abuse, by the Apostle Paul. Yet they found forgiveness and a new abundant life in the Lord. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Why should you not commit suicide? Friend, God stands ready to repair what is broken, namely, the life you have now, the life you want to end by suicide. In Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3, the prophet wrote, The Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to comfort all who mourn, and provide for those who grieve, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Come to Jesus, and let Him restore your joy and usefulness as you trust Him to begin a new work in your life. He promises to restore the joy you have lost and give you a new spirit to sustain you. Your broken heart is precious to Him. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Psalm 51, verse 12, and verses 15 through 17. Will you accept the Lord as your Savior and Shepherd? He will guide your thoughts and steps, one day at a time, through His Word, the Bible. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Psalm 32, verse 8. He will be the sure foundation for your times, a rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure, Isaiah 33, verse 6. In Christ, you will still have struggles, 
but you will now have hope. He is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Proverbs 18, verse 24. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you in your hour of decision. If you desire to trust Jesus as your Savior, speak these words in your heart to God. God, I need you in my life. Please forgive me for all that I have done. I place my faith in Jesus Christ and believe that He is my Savior. Please cleanse me, heal me, and restore my joy in life. Thank you for your love for me and for Jesus' death on my behalf. Have you made a decision to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior because of what you have heard here? If so, please send us an email at questions at gotquestions.org. God Questions Ministry seeks to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by providing biblical answers to today's questions. Online at gotquestions.org. My name is Dale Pazinski. I'm 19 years old, and this is how I live United. I've always been kind of a computer geek, and I found a way to use those skills to help the homeless in my community. For people facing hard times, computer skills and a basic resume are so important. It may seem like a small thing, but it makes a huge difference in people's lives. So with United Way, I created a program where I work with the homeless. Together, we go through their whole job history, write a resume, and then save it on their very own USB drive. We provide workbooks and training certificates. I even budgeted for cupcakes so we can celebrate as a class when one of our people gets a job. That's huge. When somebody says, hey man, that job that you helped me apply for, I got it. That's what Living United feels like to me. My name is Dale Pazinski. I help people achieve financial independence. So I don't just wear the shirt, I live it. Give, advocate, volunteer, Live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Is this radio spot where Nikki Baker's life, it would start pretty normal, like this. But, but then, then right around here, her life would take a bad turn with her mother abusing her. And about this far in, Nikki would drop out of high school and run away. Yeah, she'd be forced to work two jobs struggling to support herself. And her daughter. She'd feel stuck, stuck, stuck. But then she'd decide to earn her GED diploma. She'd take my prep classes. Study every night and feel unstuck. Because she finally hears someone say, Nikki Baker, come up and get your GED diploma. If this radio spot were Nikki Baker's life, the ending wouldn't be the ending at all. It would be the beginning of a brighter future. For free info about GED test prep classes, call 1-877-38-YOUR-GED or visit yourged.org. GED is a registered trademark of the American Council on Education. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. This is Morning Inspirations with Minister Kenneth Jenkins.
What are the limitations while employing minors? Stay right there. Today's legal alert might just keep you out of trouble with the law. Here's attorney David Gibbs, Jr. of the Christian Law Association. A Christian school comprised of a K-12 academy and a four-year college allows the college students to work on campus to help cover the cost of tuition. The students never receive cash, but they are given an earnings statement at the end of the school year. The school's financial administrator contacted the Christian Law Association for advice concerning how to handle the financial records of 14- and 15-year-old students who work for the school. One of our attorneys explained that the minors should be treated exactly the same as the college students. Our attorney then advised the administrator to remember that minors are limited by federal employment law to less than 18 hours of work per week when school is in session. That's attorney David Gibbs, Jr. of the Christian Law Association. And you can continue today's dialogue by exploring the resources waiting for you at our website, christianlaw.org. You can sign up for our free monthly newsletter or connect with an attorney at christianlaw.org. christianlaw.org. It takes 12 years to create a graduate. It takes about the same time to create a dropout. And at the end of the day, the difference between a child becoming one or the other could be you. Studies prove that reading to a child regularly dramatically improves reading skills. And kids who read well by third grade are four times as likely to graduate. So United Way is asking you to make a pledge. Tutor a child who needs help. Mentor a kid who needs someone on their side. Volunteer to read to children. Because when a child advances, we all advance. Communities improve. The path to success starts long before graduation day. And the difference between a graduate and a dropout could be you. Be a reader, tutor, or mentor. Give. Advocate. Volunteer. Live United. Go to liveunited.org now. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Later, much later, we heard something. We didn't breathe for listening. Then footsteps on the back porch, creeping, then more confident. After all, nobody was home. A hand closed on the knob on the screen door to the kitchen and found it latched. We heard a little sawing sound as a file began to slice through the screen wire. Grandma reached down for something in her sewing basket. Through the darkness, I managed to notice Grandma's rocker was rocking and she wasn't in it. She was standing over me. Keep just behind me, she whispered. I followed her across the room into the kitchen. Now we were by the door, and I heard the scuffle of heavy feet in there on the crinkly linoleum. Grandma turned back to me. Under my nose, she struck a wooden match with her thumbnail. She touched the match to something in her other hand. It sizzled. Then she leaned down and rolled it into the invisible kitchen. Explore new worlds. Find out what happens next by reading the book A Long Way from Chicago by Richard Peck. For other great book ideas, visit literacy.gov. A message from the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. This is Ann Graham Lotz with Daily Light for Daily Living. What seemingly impossible task has God given you to do? Have you done it? Or are you procrastinating? What if Noah had procrastinated and told God he would build the ark, but at a time when he felt more capable, or when his financial situation was more stable, or when his family was more self-sufficient, or when it was just more convenient? 
if Noah had the attitude many of us do when God gives us an assignment beyond our ability, he would have been totally unprepared for the horrifying devastation when it struck, and we wouldn't be here today to talk about it. Instead of procrastinating, Noah obeyed without question or hesitation. Genesis 6.22 says that he did everything just as God commanded him. Listen to me. What is your impossible task? Obey God just as he has commanded. You'll be glad you did. This is Anne Graham Lott. Thank you. 
Would you join with me, please, in prayer? Pray with me. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. Jesus, thank you that you loved me enough that you became a man and died on the cross, paid the price for all the wrong things that I have done. I'm sorry for my sin. It's my sin that puts you on that cross. And I'm sorry. I don't want to live in rebellion to you anymore. I ask you to forgive me. And tonight I open my heart and I invite you into my life to be my Savior and my Lord. I believe, Jesus, you are the Son of God. I believe you died for me to pay the price for all the wrong things that I've committed against God and against man. I believe that on the third day, by the power of God, you were raised from the dead as living proof that my trust in you tonight is not in vain. I believe that as Christ was raised from the dead, so tonight, Almighty God, you are raising me from the dead, from the death of sin. You are giving me a new life, the life of Jesus Christ. Oh God, on my testimony and the belief in my heart, and according to your word, at this moment, I believe I am saved. I am saved. I am saved. Hallelujah. Saved. 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 Oh, let me ask you, friends, in closing tonight, have you done this? Have you obeyed the gospel? Have you obeyed the gospel? Have you come to that obedience of faith? Have you come to that place of true repentance and true faith? Have you turned around? Have you forsaken your sin? Have you turned around? Have you forsaken your sin? And are you trusting alone tonight in Jesus Christ for your salvation? For there is no other way. There is no other message. Well, there is no other way. There is no other method. Oh, come to him. Come to the Savior tonight. Come to him just as you are. Come to him in your sin. Come to him in all your needs. And cast yourself upon his mercy and upon his infinite grace. And cast yourself upon his mercy and upon his infinite grace. Cast yourself truly to him. And you too will enter into that joy
am looking at that work with Minister Kenneth G. 